0: If you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles and having it ready to go from Genesis to Revelation with a few stops in between. As we go to God's Word, let's go to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are with us by Your Holy Spirit. We thank You for your word. And we pray, Father, now that your word would give us growing, your spirit would give us growing understanding of your word and change our hearts more and more to put your word into practice so as to reveal your glory and to do good to our neighbor. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Week number two in our three part series, Resting But Restless, the Already and the Not Yet of Advent. Um, I'm going to begin with a question. Uh, You don't really need to answer it out loud, uh, but I do hope you spend some time either now or later answering it. Um, What do you make of the thought of being alone? Do you love it? Do you hate it? Is the thought of being alone delightful? Or is it dreadful? Now, think with me for a moment about being left alone by people. Is that something to avoid at all cost? Or is it something to embrace? Is being left alone by people uh, terrifying or is it terrific? I think we've all got an answer to that question and it may actually depend on how we're feeling on a particular day. But I think all of us sometimes gravitate toward we want to be with people, we want people with us, or we'd just rather be by ourselves. But what about being left alone by God? Now, in the, it, Scripture is clear, uh, Psalm 149, you, you can't get away from God's presence. And, and God is present even in hell. He's present in his wrath. But what do you think about being left alone by God, being absent from his favorable presence? Today, We're going to take a look at God's promise, the promise of his presence to cheer. We've been, last week, with his promise of power to save, and next week we'll look at his peace to receive. Now, again, a few words about the first part, or actually the second part of this title, the the already and the not yet of Advent. Advent, of course, meaning coming, arrival, Uh, the already the past, the, the not yet the future, and we live between those two endpoints. We live in the present. And as I mentioned last week, our, our banner, one of our banners of truth that speaks of God's grace that has appeared, from a commentary on Titus, John Stott writes this, the best way to live now in this present age is to learn to do spiritually What is impossible to do physically, namely to look in opposite directions at the same time. Now, kids, I know you think sometimes your parents may have eyes in the back of their head. And I think most parents do. But can we really look ahead and look back physically at the same time? No, of course not. I mean, yes, in combat, your head needs to be on a swivel, You've always got to be looking behind you as you look ahead as well. But physically, we can't do it simultaneously. And yet, that's what we are called to do spiritually. To live here and now, we've got to look backwards and forward at the same time. We look back on Christ's incarnation, His first advent, and we look forward to His return, His second advent. We are called and equipped to live today in many ways because we have light from both yesterday and light from tomorrow. But a few words about the the first part of the title, Resting but Restless. Um, If you had to describe your life right now, your your finances, your relationships, um, your job situation, your, your family relationships, are you resting or are you restless? And I think it's not an either or. I think resting but restless characterizes pretty well most of our lives, most of the time. We're satisfied, but not yet fully satisfied. We're, we're resting, certainly, in the good news of the first advent, in his first coming. But we are restless for the announcement, for the good news of the second advent, his second coming, his return. An Advent, this time of resting but being restless, this already and the not yet is a time of tension. Tension, that word coming from the Latin that means to stretch. And if you're like me, you don't like tension. You want to get rid of it. You want to find the, the, the right pain reliever to get rid of the tension headache. You got to find something to relieve the stress and strain of life. You know, tension in our lives here and now is, is undeniable. I mean, we are human. If we were robots and machines, maybe there could be no tension, but we are humans. There is tension in our lives. It's undeniable, and it's also unavoidable. And so we've all got to learn to deal with it, to live with it. And I've got really good news for us today. We're going to learn to live in the tension and with the tension. You see, God's word gives us all that we need to recognize the tension, to remain in the tension and not try to escape, and to rejoice in the tension. And as I mentioned last week, I'm going to mention it again, there is one requirement to be able to recognize the tension, remain in the tension, and to rejoice in the tension. That one requirement, of course, is faith. Faith in Jesus Christ, walking by faith in Jesus Christ and not by sight. We referred last week to that great hymn, Joy to the World. Interestingly, written by Isaac Watts in 1719, not about the first advent, but rather the second advent as he looked at Psalm 98 and saw the Lord coming in judgment. The Old Testament saints waited A long time for the advent of the Messiah. They waited for him to come. And the New Testament saints, we wait for the second advent of the Messiah, for his return. In his first advent, Jesus brought the kingdom of grace and establishes the church militant, still struggling, still being sanctified, still fighting the good fight of faith. But in his second advent, that kingdom of grace will become the kingdom of glory. And the church militant will, as it were, lay down its arms and be received as the church triumphant. And Advent, just the very word, therefore, points us both backward and forward. For both Advents, it's a time of anticipation and waiting. And the present age in which we live now, we are resting, but restless For three weeks, we're unpacking and exploring three big promises found in Scripture, promises made and promises kept. Now, as I mentioned last week, and as you saw, this is not a consecutive expositional message or a topical expositional, but rather it's a redemptive historical. It's a broad sweep of the history of salvation from beginning to end. We're going to take off and we're going to land we're going to take off at the beginning in Genesis and we're going to land in Revelation at the end and we're going to make a few stops along the way and to do that we'll consider for the promise of his presence we're going to consider the expectation the inauguration and the consummation of God's promise to be present to cheer and in particular we'll focus our attention on the tension that's in present between the time of this partial and complete fulfillment of this promise. Let's look at the expectation, Um, a promise made. And Genesis one through three is where we'll be. Um, But in order to understand the expectation here, we've actually got to interestingly go back. We got to go actually forward to Revelation. If you would turn with me back to Revelation 21. Remember in Revelation 21, it's speaking of a new heaven and a new earth. And I want you to hear verse 3, this announcement, a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, a word that gets our attention, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, think about that. That expression could also apply to Genesis 1. Genesis 2. The dwelling place of God. And man, were, we're together. It's the Garden of Eden. It's a perfect place. It's where the Creator shares space with those He created. Eden was paradise. It's a place... Before the fall of unhindered and unrestricted access to the very presence of God. But we know that paradise didn't last. There was a paradise lost. And so now, go back with me to Genesis 3. Genesis 3. We read this last week, but I want to read one verse. Verse 8. And they, that is Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Wow. Kind of their usual routine, right? I mean, it gives the impression that this was just how life was. The Lord mysteriously walked with his creatures his high point of his creation there was a relationship unhindered and unrestricted to be sure god was god and man was man he was the creator they were the creature but there's even by this first part of verse eight there's this regular routine the lord is with his people but because of sin because of the fall of man into sin man is no longer fit for god's presence because God's holiness would be their ruin, and as we saw last week, with that promise from Genesis three fifteen, and then even just the banishment from the garden and the clothing that's provided, that God is merciful, and He He mercifully removes them from His presence. Isn't that interesting? The banishment out of the garden was God's mercy. Why? Because otherwise He would have every right based on his own justice, to end their life. Sure, they died spiritually. Their physical death would come, but they weren't fit any longer to be in the presence of God. You see, the presence of God is either man's greatest delight when there's no sin, or sin, as we know, as we will see, has been atoned for, or it's man's greatest dread and if you want to just distinguish between a Christian and a non-Christian, I'd sum it up like this. I mean, a Christian delights in the presence of God and a, and a non-Christian dreads the presence of God. So as redemptive history unfolds, even though they've been banished, even though there's a curse on, on um Uh, uh, the, the serpent, the land, even Adam and Eve are gonna have difficulties. Even with that, what does God do? He moves toward his people. He makes covenants, right? He issues promises. He moves toward his people. He speaks to men. Think of Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. Did they go out to find God? No, he pursued them. And as redemptive history continues, God begins to share with his people how he's going to be present with them the tabernacle and the temple. The building place, the building of the tabernacle in the wilderness, of course, a dwelling place. For who? For Yahweh, the Lord, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, the, the God who revealed himself to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who revealed himself to Moses, build this tabernacle. Take this tabernacle with you. I'm going with you, the Lord says. And of course, the tabernacle, a tent, gives way to a building, the temple Where in the wilderness? No, the promised land in Jerusalem. God says, I will be present with my people. But notice for both the tabernacle and the temple, do you think it's unhindered access, unrestricted access? How about this for access to the very inner room of the Lord's presence? How often? Once a year. Who gets to go? One man. One man once a year. The access is still restricted. And as God unfolded his plan, his plan to make good on his promise in Genesis 3.15, part of that plan was the tabernacle in the wilderness and the temple in the promised land. And with that being the case, God's people have got to live by faith in the promises of God and not by sight. They can't yet live by sight. They're having to live by faith. And the Old Testament points forward to a more robust presence of God to come. In particular, especially in Isaiah, it leans forward toward a person who will come and bring the very presence of God to earth. So let's look now at how God's word makes it known that God makes good on the promise of his presence. And to that, we need to look, of course, to Jesus Christ for, as Paul writes to the Corinthian church, all the promises of God find their yes in him. So let's look at the inauguration and you think Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's promises kept part one. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew one. Last week, when we were in Matthew 1, we, we, we stopped a bit at Matthew 1.21, where he was to be named Jesus. Why? He would save his people from their sin. And if you continue on into verses 22 and 23, what we see, and let me turn there myself to Matthew one. Beginning in verse 22, we read this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's got to be the best parenthetical expression in all of Scripture, right? I mean, isn't that great that Matthew, the Lord, directs this to be recorded? Emmanuel, oh, isn't that the strange name that appears twice in Isaiah 7? Emmanuel, what does that mean? God with us. God with us. In other words, at the outset, announcing the upcoming birth of Jesus, it's he's here, God is here. He's the very presence of God clothed in flesh. It's the mystery of the incarnation. And every year, especially during Lessons and Carols, we go to John 1, right? John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And those of you that are familiar with different translations know that it can actually be translated, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That. Tabernacle made of various materials that could be folded up and carted with God's people has now come in the flesh. In a living human being and dwelling among God's people. Now we're going to go now to John 14 and we're going to stay there for just a couple of minutes. And so please do turn with me to John 14. I mean, isn't it familiar but astonishing, Emmanuel, God with us, the word became flesh and dwelt among us? John 14, Jesus is teaching his disciples. Um, We see the incarnation is not an end in and of itself, but rather it's a means to a greater end because Jesus comes that we, his people, could dwell in God's presence, not just here and now, but for eternity And we will see that it's going to be the restoration of Eden to to regain what was lost, to to bring back unhindered and unrestricted access to God. John 14, it's before the high priestly prayer that um, uh, Table Talk this month is dealing with, but it's Jesus' intimate conversation with those closest to him. Listen as we read the first few verses of John 14. Again, Jesus is preparing them for his death, right? He's preparing them for the trouble that's to come. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Interesting language Jesus uses. In my father's house. House. Uh, The tabernacle, yeah, that's in our history. And, And the temple, though rebuilt, it's here. But you know, many rooms many rooms how about that one room that one room that one man got to access once a year in my father's house are many rooms and Jesus says you know the way to where I'm going and Thomas representing everybody says this Lord we do not know where you're going how can we know the way great question right all of us would have asked that question right And then we hear those words from Jesus. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is going to go on to talk about his relationship with the Father and that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father Jesus, you see, is not just Emmanuel, God, with us. He's a means for us to be with God. He is the God-man. He's the mediator. He represents God to us, and he represents us to God. He is that one way, one truth, one life. I mean, here Jesus is saying, in many ways, this is the gospel. I'm going to live for you. I'm going to die for you on your behalf And in your place. That's how you're going to get to God. The father. Your creator. And we read on. It's a great statement. In verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. What's Jesus mean? Well it probably means a couple of things. One is of course. He's he's going to come back from the dead and he's going to come back to you. And we see that in the post-resurrection appearances. And it probably means that he's going to come back at the end to gather everybody and take them home. But of course it means that he's going to, the Holy Spirit's going to be sent. That you're going to have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit with you. And so here, We need to speak of the presence of Jesus in this time of tension, in this time between the already and the not yet. I'm not going to leave you at orphans. I'm going to come to you. The Holy Spirit has come, of course. The Holy Spirit, as we saw in our series from the Apostles' Creed, uh, that when you say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, you believe in the presence of a powerful person. Jesus says in this passage, I will take you to myself, that where I am, you also you may be also. There's a closeness, an intimacy with Jesus and his people. Recall these words from Mark chapter 3, and when, and he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So Jesus calls these disciples, he calls them apostles, and what's he gonna do? Uh, He's gonna send them out to preach and teach, right? To, to, To cast out demons and heal, right? As we see in Acts. What did we miss? So that they might be with him with him present you remember in Acts 4 what was it a year or so ago now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus wow Let me ask all of us a question, and I'm asking me a question too. Can other people recognize that we've been with Jesus? Now, in this time between the two advents, this time after Jesus' ascension and before his return, of course, we are with Jesus now by the Holy Spirit. We are with him as we Read his word as we pray. Can people recognize that you've been with Jesus? Now, I went to seminary for four years. I'm very grateful for seminary. It was a tremendous time of growth and training. And a lot of times my life may have smelled like I was with a systematic theology textbook. And I am so very grateful for our church's confessional standards. The Westminster Confession of Faith and the shorter and larger catechisms. And people may recognize that I've been with this. But that pales into comparison of being recognized as having been with Jesus Because if you're like me, the people that have had the most influence in my life, I think of my father, I think of Wayne Haddock, I think of my wife, I think of others, they're people who've been with Jesus and they're with me and I can tell. God has promised to be present with his people. Jesus has promised to be present with his people by faith, here and now. I mentioned last week that that theologian made the observation that in these in-between times, these last days, it's like the time between D-Day in June of 1944 and, and Victory in Europe Day in May of 1944. 45 the decisive battle has been won but the war is not yet over full and final victory is ahead God is present to be sure yet as Paul writes to the church in Corinth for now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face now I know in part then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known Paul says you know a day is coming Where the dim glass is going to be replaced with clear glass. And the partial is going to become the complete. And we're still, until then, going to have to walk by faith and not by sight. Let's look at the consummation once again. Revelation 21. Revelation, apocalyptic literature, unveiling, it pulls the curtain back. Jesus will defeat all of his and our enemies. It's the time of the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that aren't found in our ability or skill, but are found in Jesus. As we've been saying, Revelation is an encouragement for believers. The overall message in two words, God wins. But because God wins, there is a restoration of all that was lost and it's not just a restoring, but it's a new creation. You see, God wins and God rebuilds better than before. A new heaven and a new earth. Here are Revelation 21, 1-4 through once again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned, For her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You see, the enemy has been defeated fully and finally. And so now it's not just the absence of the enemy, but it's the presence of a friend. It's full and free fellowship. The voice of pronounces the final fulfillment of the Emmanuel that is God with us theme that runs throughout redemptive history. You see the tabernacle and the temple as great as they were they were but faint previews of coming attractions because my friends the previews are over here. The main feature the feature film what you've been waiting for is now here. Because paradise lost is now paradise found, regained, restored. But you know what? It's better than regained, better than restored. It's rebuilt bigger and better. Derek Thomas comments here on this passage, the church's final resting place is in fellowship with Jesus Christ on earth, a new earth. The union is described in terms of the closest possible intimacy, one which the Bible has been repeating in every period of redemptive history. And now again in the closing chapters of the final book of the Bible, they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The effect of this covenantal bond of intimacy is to reassure the people of God that no harm can ever come to them, no ill disturb their serenity. It is the fulfillment of the redemptive purposes of God, get this, from the very beginning. You know, for those that want to be left alone, especially left alone by God, The presence of God is really terrifying. But for all of those who don't want to be left alone, who don't want to have to figure out how to make it on your own, who recognize that you are weak and helpless and frail and need a Savior, for those people, the presence of this God is one not of dread, but of delight, of great comfort, the intimacy of the bride and the bridegroom coming together. You see, God's power secures victory over sin, Satan, and death with the first coming of Jesus, and he completes it with his second coming. And today we've briefly considered the promise of God's presence Last week, we took a look at the promise of God's power to save, and next week, we'll look at the promise of God's peace to receive. But let's conclude with a few observations about walking by faith and not by sight as it relates to the presence of God here and now between the two advents of Jesus. We really are living in the last days this time between the two advents of Jesus Christ and what do we do? We walk by faith. We live by faith in the one who came in grace and the one who will come again in glory. The one who came as a helpless babe and the one who will return as a mighty warrior to judge both the living and the dead. And here in this in-between time, we have his presence to cheer us. Great is thy faithfulness. What a great hymn. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth, thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Pardon from sin, peace and presence. Now that's a message there. You know Peter writes to believers struggling and suffering. Peter writes in other words to us, to believers here in Iran, in North Korea, in South Carolina, in Colombia, South America. This Peter writes this, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let that sink in. Written to believers who are suffering and struggling. You don't see him, but you love him. He's not here bodily present with you, but you trust him. And you are filled with inexpressible joy. You know, there's another hymn that we've sung once or twice. The sands of time are sinking. You know, the hourglass. When that, you know, um, sand goes through, I guess it's the day, right? The sands of time are sinking. The bride eyes, not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. You see, God's presence cheers us now on the way to Emmanuel's land. And there's another song written not long ago a decade or so ago by someone who grew up in Kentucky, and these are the words. He spoke with prophets' voices, and he showed himself in a cloud of fire, but no one had seen his face until the one most holy revealed to us his perfect heart's desire and left his rightful place. And in one glorious moment, all eternity was shaken as God broke through the darkness that had kept us apart And with love that conquers loneliness and hope that fills all emptiness, he came to earth to show our worth. So rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel has come. And our God is with us, Emmanuel. He's come to save us, Emmanuel. And we will never face life alone now that God has made himself known as father and friend With us through the end, Emmanuel, our God is with us, Emmanuel. My friends, be of good cheer and rejoice that the King of grace and the King of glory has come and will come for us and our salvation. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus indeed has not left us as orphans, but we have received the Holy Spirit. And we thank you, Father, that he is a guarantee, a pledge of what is to come. That unhindered and unrestricted, full, final, free access that our hearts long for. Oh, Father, we thank you that in this day of struggle and suffering and sin, you have nonetheless made provision for us and you are present with us. Oh, Father, be pleased to make your people here at Grace and Peace more and more aware of your presence with us. And may we be a people before one another and before a watching world that it is unmistakable that we are a people who have been and are with Jesus. For it's in his name we pray, amen.